Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening to the show, enjoying it, finding value in these Peace Corps stories, head on over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. Speaking of five-star reviews, I would like to give a special shout-out to Amy Andrus, who says, absolutely perfect for aspiring PCVs, five stars. The My Peace Corps Story podcast has become one of my all-time favorite podcasts. I've been seriously considering joining the Peace Corps for a while now, but I wanted to hear about the actual experiences of volunteers, good and bad. This podcast has made me realize without a doubt that Peace Corps is right for me and has shown me what to expect. I know Tyler tries to keep the podcast around an hour long, but honestly, I wish they were longer. I would just love to listen to a casual, off-the-script conversation where they exchange stories and memories. I would listen for hours. I binge-listened to all of them within a matter of weeks and cannot wait for Tuesdays to come with another episode. Thanks for all you do, Tyler. Well, Amy, thank you for that review. It means a lot for me that my podcast is one of your all-time favorite podcasts. As a podcast listener and lover, uh, I really hold that comment in in high regard. So thank you very, very much. And thank you for letting me know that at least uh, one other person would be interested in that that longer format podcast. Uh, I've got a few people in mind that might be willing to sit down with me and have that off-the-script conversation and exchanging stories and memories. So uh, you might see one of those in the future. Speaking of Peace Corps stories, this week I sat down and talked with Paul Henry Devotee, who served in Nicaragua, a Uh, a few years ago, uh, but he has stayed connected to his community for many, many years through art. Art, which he saw when he landed in the country in his Peace Corps training village, and that he has continued to work with, fostering a community of artists in Nicaragua who are making these amazing pots. We talk about his Peace Corps service and his continued service to the country he loves, Nicaragua. So without further ado... Here is the latest episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. Hi, my name is Paul Henry Devotee. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nicaragua from 1995 to 1997, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? Doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be a part of your. Uh, this Peace Corps story endeavor that you have going on. Thank you. Uh, 
very glad that, that you found me, uh, stumbled across my podcast when you were just uh, searching for stuff on iTunes or I don't know what uh, podcast platform you were using, but uh, I just love hearing how people found me and very excited to get into your story in Nicaragua in the 90s because I, I think it's it's so interesting to me that pre-internet, pre-cell phone error and that volunteer experience that has been essentially lost now in the modern day and hearing what volunteers' life was like then, but also interesting stories like yours, how your service has continued uh, for you know 25 years after the fact. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I really do agree with you on the the idea of the internet age and how it's how it's transformed a lot of experiences because uh, I, when I went to Nicaragua in 1995, September 1995, and I did a training program in a little village called San Juan de Oriente, and uh, we went as a uh, I believe it was 26 or 27. You know, it it really the the internet age was kind of starting in a way. I I left and was working in a little office in Manhattan and I was sitting up there on the 26th floor and I was looking at the window and I was wondering myself, you know, it is, you know, I did some traveling. Um, I did a semester abroad in Spain. Uh, I did a kind of whirlwind travel with my father in Mexico that really my uh, curiosity about traveling, but I was sitting in that office in um, midtown Manhattan and I was looking out the window and I was like, you know, am I, and, and, and I'm, am I an office guy now? I believe I was 24 years old. So um, I was doing database uh, work for uh, a company that was gathering economic information and selling it to banks and, um, you know, financial firms and all this. And I was working in margin market markets data and I had the DOS system on my computer And the guy uh, that was another right out of college next to me, he had a desk and he was all excited because he had just gotten windows and he had gotten windows, uh, you know, installed into his computer. So that's kind of the era that we started, um, you know, and and then I decided to um, go to a Peace Corps meeting and and it kind of started from there. But just to set the technology date, you know, from, say, 1994, 1995 to what we're doing now, it's it's really transformed, you know, experiences around the world because th- these communications are, are connecting us all. But certainly it wasn't like that when I went to Nicaragua in 1995. Mm-hmm. And you said that you were sitting in this office kind of wondering, am, am I an office worker now? Is I've got, I've got this job. It sounds like it was a, a, a good job for a, a, tw- a 24-year-old. Uh, but what what was your final decision to to go to the Peace Corps? Was it just to try something different before you settled in uh, to an office job? Or had you decided at that point, no, I really don't think that office life is something that I want? Yeah, I was really, um, again, from a just kind of a whirlwind trip I took um, as a junior in high school. And up to that point, I really hadn't seen any of the world outside of you know, I, I went to school in upstate New York and, uh, you know, I was going to college at Oneana. Um, unfortunately it was called Stoniana more than Oneana, but I'll leave that alone. But I, I was really kind of secluded. And when I got, um, 
you know, the experience of just traveling and then actually taking a semester abroad. I did that in Barcelona, um, graduating influenced me enough to get this job where I was working in emerging markets. And I actually had to talk to people in Spanish and I didn't speak Spanish that well. So that was totally intimidating. But when I sat there and I looked out, I was like, I want a life experience that doesn't include getting up, putting on, you know, I, I had two ties and maybe one jacket and I had to stretch that out the whole week to go into the office. Um, and I, I was just really ready to have an, uh, some sort of experience and the Peace Corps, I had heard about it. I maybe, you know, heard that slogan, the toughest job you'll ever love type of thing. But um, when, when it when it came to the idea of, of creating an experience, you know, somehow that came in, I went to a meeting and it, and it really just took off very quickly from, from there. So I, I was just wanting to get out and, and see the world. But I, I knew at that point that it, I wanted to be somewhere in Latin America. And I, I made, I went to the meeting and I signed up and did all that, that I, you know, there was, there was enough, there was enough countries in, in Latin America. I wanted to work on the Spanish and do that. So, I, I, they really didn't want you to be too specific about exactly where you wanted to go, but I put that kind of Spanish-speaking caveat in there because that's what I was really interested in, and and Nicaragua popped up. Okay, and when you were applying, about how long was the process? So you you went to this meeting, you decided on the Peace Corps that that was something you were going to pursue. How long from starting the application process to actually landing in Nicaragua? I, you know, it's a it's a ways back, but it, it went pretty quick because they were they were developing uh, the the small business uh, development program in Nicaragua was coming together. So, if I'm recollecting, it was something in the early summer, say, you know, June, and on. Uh, you know, I think it was like the 25th or 28th of September, I was in Nicaragua, um, you know, doing that couple day training in Granada, Nicaragua before going to my training site. So uh, it, it probably was about three months, if not a little less. Oh, wow. That That is definitely very fast uh, from from my experience and also experiences that I've heard from others. Uh, so yeah, three months is pretty quick. But when you landed in Nicaragua, you're in your training village. What exactly were you uh, learning? You said you were doing small business development, but what type of businesses were you going to be working with or were you learning about? Well, um, you know, I, I believe a lot of training in different places around the world is different. And I know in uh, the early years, there was some training, you know, domestically. But uh, in my case, we, we went to Nicaragua. We had more of like a two-day kind of orientation. And then we got split up based on our level of Spanish. And we went to training villages. And uh, San Juan de Oriente, where I went with one other volunteer, I lived with a family. And so it was about a 12 week, which, uh, integration where, you know, we, we really were part of the community. We had a Spanish teacher, but we lived with families and it really was the crash course that you needed to, um, you know, and even after 12 weeks, you're, I mean, you're just, you're sitting in the basics. And then that's when I went to uh, a larger town called Rivas, which is in the Southwest part of Nick. 
and I worked with um, a small business uh, loan organization. It was called Asoderi. It was the Asociación de Desarrollo de, de Rivas, and it was giving very like micro credit to little businesses. And because it served the whole department, uh, it was very diverse. And again, I was sitting there in a small office concept that I had when I was sitting in New York City. Am I, you know, am I going to go to this little office every day? And, you know, it's going to be in Spanish, whatever. But um, what I kind of invented my own little project. And what it was, was that these, um, you know, very small businesses, you know, just individuals or cooperatives were coming into this little office in uh, in Rivas, which was the town. It was also a department. And so they would come in from the whole department and they would put in an application. And so so the idea that I had is when these people come in and put in their application, uh, I on my bike would then go visit them wherever they were, whether it was on the island of Bomatepe which is the largest island inside of a lake in the world that was part of this department in Lake Nicaragua, which is, I believe, the 19th largest lake in the world. And even then the Pacific coastline, there was a lot of trees and there was uh, some small uh, tourist, um, you know, businesses coming together. But wherever they were, I would go out and meet them. And I had a little sheet and I would just ask them questions. I would be like, you know, how much money are you requesting? What are you going to do with the money? What is your vision for you know, you know, investing this money and how it come together. And we would do like a little worksheet and that part of it was really cool. But the bigger picture of, of it was getting out of this little office bike and traveling around and like getting to know that part of Nicaragua that way and going to, you know, which were, you know, even areas in the town or, you know, getting out to the, you know, the most rural areas. And there was some, different cooperatives, whether there were, uh, you know, different fruit farmers that would come together to sell their, their crop as an individual. So I would go to like cooperative meetings and all these things. And, and, and what it was, it was a cool way to meet these businesses, but it was even a better way to like get out and really know what was going on, you know, outside of town. And, and that was something that, that really worked really well for me. Well, what a unique sort of job setup. Cause I know, I feel like a lot of times volunteers, they, they get to their site, and they're working in their communities, and they either spend time in their immediate community, or they are in the, the nearest provincial capital, maybe hanging out with other Peace Corps volunteers. But there tends not to be a lot of that venturing out and exploring these other surrounding communities. And it's something that I didn't do enough of. But uh, what an amazing opportunity to just continually be on the move and, and biking all over the place. Uh, do you have any favorite memories uh, from uh, your, your adventures on a bike or things that you saw and stuff you experienced? Yeah, there's a lot of them actually. The, the whole bike thing is interesting because I went to the market, like when I first got there and, and I bought a bicycle and you know, the, the, the bikes that they have, I mean, bikes are everywhere, probably any Peace Corps volunteer, any corner of the world. It's like people get around on bicycles, but I went to the market. I bought this bicycle. I don't know. It was 80 bucks or something. Um, and it was really heavy and it was really clunky. And, you know, so I wasn't 
all that happy with it. And I went back, it was, you know, a bike shop in the market. And when I went there for whatever reason, they had gotten some donated bikes, um, maybe about two weeks after I purchased this one. And they had like a real, at that time, high end mountain bike. Mongoose was like the one you could pick up on your finger. It was all light. It had Shimano components on it. And it was just like, whoa, that's the bike I wanted. So I went to, I went and sold the one I had. Um, and I, and I, per, I think it was like a hundred bucks or something, Some, something that would have been definitely two or three times more at home. But, uh, so, so I got that bike and that bike really allowed me to trek around and, and be known around town for driving that bike around. And then, uh, there was, as far as maybe a place that anybody that knows about Nicaragua because it's kind of trendy, it's a fishing village, but a lot of the tourism in Nicaragua goes there. That was part of the department. And it was about 24 kilometers from the town of Rivas. And there's, there was the, the, you know, the main roads that went, but there was a back road that went through the hills and it's about 24 kilometers. And I would do that bike trip about two times a week. So I would just put my bike on the, on the bus on the way home but that ride down, there was a dusty old, like Russian style military vehicle that served as the bu- as the bus going into <laughs> the interior road. And they knew me because they would see me going and I would race that freaking thing. And um, when when we went down the hills, I would be going flying by it. We're talking about dusty, rocky road. Um, and then it would catch up to me and you drive like just like it was a funny thing. And so when the bus would pass me, there was these big, you know, grates on the side. I would hold on to it and it would be pulling me along and the people in the back would be laughing and I would be laughing. So one time as it's passing me, I grab onto the grate and I'm going along. And then all of the sudden I cross over a big cow dump right in the middle of the, oh. of the dusty road. <laughs> uh, being like all you know, mountain tires, it just started flinging it up in the air and like into my face and everything. And I let go. And, and I still can remember hearing the the laugh of those people in the back of that, uh, of that, that dusty old military truck driving along as, as like the, the was flying up in my face. So it's kind of a nasty thing to like, think about, but it's definitely something that, that you remember. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I caught up to it again. So and they got to like say, hey. basically, like, essentially telling me like you ate shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, in in a moment, it may not have been one of your favorite experiences, but but looking back, sometimes the things like that are end up being one of our favorite experiences because it's just a hilarious story once you have a little distance from it, and uh, the the taste of right. shit is no longer in your mouth. <laughs> right, or like stuff. It was like it like went up to the back of my shirt and to the front of my hat that I had on it was uh yeah so I mean you know I guess I guess Peace Corps volunteers that I I think everybody has some sort of story somewhat you know so I guess sharing that is maybe I don't know it's not really that embarrassing but it's probably something that that every volunteer everywhere along the you know playing on the soccer field that you know has like is a cow field sometimes so like everybody probably has some sort of memory in that in that realm 
Mm-hmm. I, I definitely have a few. Uh, well, in, in addition to all those good things that Peace Corps volunteers remember about their service, uh, there are some things that they wish they could forget or uh, just negative memories. Uh, maybe, maybe you have uh, suppressed those over, uh, over the years and getting a little bit of distance from your service. Uh, but do you have uh, a least favorite memory uh, from your time in Nicaragua? I really had a, a very, I really had a positive experience. I went into it in a like eyes wide open, like not really expecting anything more than an adventure and, and really feeling like I wanted to completely integrate myself into the community and learn and just be open and adventurous. And, um, I, as I briefly mentioned before, the the group that I we went with, you know, through training, and it was it was a great group, and everybody, I mean, you know, very different. There was young people, there were people like the you know at the retirement age that were coming in, which was really cool. People from all over the place, but um, you know, I think when it was all said and done, we had we had lost more than half of the uh, of the group. You know, some some early, some late, but you know, about half the group had had you know left early or or found you know another even like a job. One guy like ended up playing professional baseball in the country and left the Peace Corps to do that. So that was kind of a, a little bit of a bummer that a lot of people dropped off, um, but not really. I like as a personal experience. Um, you know, I, I had, there, there was one, I don't even like to, you know, I lived with a family opposed to having my own place and, and they were a really nice family and the conditions were, were pretty nice for Nicaragua. They actually had left and went to the States and came back and they had three children that had all stayed back in the States. So, um, you know, they had extra space and they, they, they took in a, a young boy who was five or six. It was later on in my Peace Corps time that um that he was there it wasn't like he was there when i first got there you know if i was there for you know almost two years it was like only maybe the last three months that he started there and uh i got to be really friendly with him and and you know got to know his family and and they they had him there they kind of sponsored him and everything uh but but they ended up uh, accusing him of, of stealing something and um you know i had asked him to like to leave and and i you know, I didn't, I didn't know if he really did that or maybe he did, but whatever it just said, that left a really bad taste in my mouth about, uh, that experience. And I, and I kind of, it, it, I kind of, I left myself at the time and I, you know, that, that, that was like the only kind of unfortunate scenario I came across while I was, you know, there's little things here and there, but that's one, you know, 24 years later that, that kind of still sticks in with me. Mm-hmm. And is there anything in particular that you miss about your time in Peace Corps? I'm not going to say your time in Nicaragua, because uh, as I know in, in doing sort of pre-interview that uh, you do have still a lot of connections to it, which we will get into, but that you miss as a as a Peace Corps volunteer in Nicaragua. Yeah, I, I miss... I, I miss not... And, and 
you know, not feeling like, um, I'm always running towards something. I mean, you, you know, we, as a volunteer, there's, there's goals and there's alliances with, you know, different, depending on the sector that you're in. And mine was with this, this office that was doing micro credit loans. And so they certainly had an agenda and they were trying to make numbers or something, but I set myself up to really enjoy and get to know the country and the people. And, and that, that freedom of being able to, you know, not, I think like we all, and today, even modern society, when we're talking about technology and whatever, it's just, you know, we're bombarded by so many things. We're busy. We're, um, you know, we, we had, we're running, we're running around, we're, we're trying to accomplish things or, you know, and at, at that point it's allowed me to really be relaxed and have an experience that, that wasn't dominated by, And I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever have that again, but that, that's something that, that I really uh, look back on as, as a growth period and as a, as an observer and as an experience that, you know, maybe is hard to do when you're, you know, you know, the real, the real world as it is. Mm -hmm. And, and from that experience, maybe that freedom or just the experience as a whole, uh, is there something that you took away from your, your service that has stayed with you? I think the thing that uh, sticks with me from the experience uh, more than anything else is that uh, people really will give you an opportunity to present yourself and they'll get to know you and let their biases go by and experience individual experience with someone is, is something that's very, um, you know, it's very important for, for, for the learning curve to an organization that's not only giving Peace Corps volunteers experiences uh, around the world in developing countries, it's for the people of those countries to get to know us and in a place like Nicaragua in 1995, when I went there and there was, you know, a, you know there's a lot of political, um, you know, propaganda against the United States. And, 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 and so that was there. It, it was past the, the, the violent time and there was a, an election, but people were very much, um, you know, pounded on via radio and TV and whatever else about you know, the imperialist Yankees of the North. And so when you got there, you know, you were kind of fishing, you know, you, you were a fish swimming, uh, uh, you know, above stream where you had to present yourself and get to know somebody. But at that point, change for what they were experiencing, you know, face to face. And, and to be quite honest, that, you know, that same experience, I think, has like relevance in, in today's political world where it, it's like th there's two factions going at each other and and a lot of times you sit there and you listen to what you agree with and you align with uh you know what suits you but sometimes you have a conversation with somebody else that maybe has different views or comes from a different perspective 
and it's okay that they come from a different perspective or they think something differently because they're just people like you, but you have to have that interaction. Otherwise you're just sitting in, you know, for example, rural people in Nicaragua, if they had no experience with uh, people from the United States or Europe or for, from anywhere else would, would only have the perspective of what they were being told and the Peace Corps putting people in certain places around the world in order to create that individual person to person experience. That's what goes a long way. Um, it may be a little different today because the world is more interconnected through technology, phone, uh, you know, TV, different movies. So, so it, uh, I really pull away from it is that, you know, having the experience in front of someone that, that looks, thinks and acts different from you is the only way to really get to know them, not necessarily read what's out there or see what's in a movie. Or said. So that's kind of a long winded answer to that, but that that's, that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am perfectly fine with long-winded answers, and I definitely agree with you that there's there's nothing like sitting down with someone and, and getting to know another person, another culture, um, in in the moment, and and getting a, a deep deeper understanding of who someone is, rather than just relying on what you've seen in the news, what you've read, uh, maybe passing experiences, um, but that that deeper connection. And I guess that is something that you have continued to do um, in your your current line of work, which has stemmed from your Peace Corps service. But could you tell everybody a little bit about um, what you currently do now and what you've more more or less have been doing ever since you finished your Peace Corps service? Uh, Sure. you know, when I when I went to Nicaragua, when I when I was sitting in that office in New York City, I, I really didn't know anything about Nicaragua except that I had heard, and I didn't know how long before that there was, you know, some sort of civil war and the Iran Contra and all that was there, and I think actually a lot of people still, um, that that's in the back of their mind. It's something they heard about. Um, so you know, current information on Nicaragua. So being in New York City, I went um, and looked up and there was a consulate there and I went to it. I was able to walk to it. And I all excuse me, all I remember is that um, there was it was like an office, but it was the size of a closet. It was an open door and there was one table with three little pamphlets on it. That was the whole idea of the consulate that was there. And I pulled out. There was nobody in there. I just took some information off the table. And reading about Nicaraguan experiences there and looking for whatever was out there, it's really pre-real internet age. You weren't able to do deep research, but there was nothing out there cultural Nicaragua. The cultural heritage, like if you think about Mexico and Guatemala and, you know, even in Honduras with the Copan and these different areas or, you know, uh, in South America and the Inca and all the different cultures, but Nicaragua, who the, who the heck has ever heard anything about the cultural heritage? So when I got placed in this training village and they were firing pottery in the streets it was immediately the one thing that struck me, um, you know, going back to traveling to Mexico and going to, you know, different ruins that were there and really, 
um, following my old man's interest in what was, you know, the, the, the ancient cultures of the area. So when we did that, what ended up being kind of a fear and loathing trip of, you know, partying and smoking and getting to know the place, but it was really centered around getting to know it, you know, the cultural sites. So when I was in this village and they were making pottery in the streets, it just was like a bell went off in my head. It was like, ding, ding, ding. Wow. This, this is the connection between this little village and something that is born out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years of tradition. So I really latched on to that. And again, this was where I was doing the training. And so I was just getting there. I was living with a the family. They were cooking, you know, lanya with wood and my alarm clock, I would say was the smoke coming into my room in the morning. But, you know, the ladies were out there, you know, firing pots in the streets. Um, they were using traditional pots um, in n- not solely, not that they didn't have anything else, but there was like this real cultural connection in this village. And when I saw the pottery in the streets, it had it. it nothing struck me on the artistic side as being, oh, my God, look at how beautiful this is. It was much more about, wow, culturally, this is something that's you know, very unique. And I started to ask, and and at that time, which was my limited Spanish about it and just observing it. And so that was the roots of, you know, I played on the soccer team there. I really interacted with that community. Uh, After 12 weeks, I went away to Rivas where I worked with the Asociacion, but I kept on coming back to the village and, um, you know, the pot, it's, it's the pottery village. And I learned that the clay is in the ground there. And I also learned that the people there always said pre-Colombino, like pre-Columbian, but you know, that was just a term that they used. Really what they knew was that their mother, father, grandmother, aunt, uncle worked in clay. And so did they, they really didn't know the long-term history on it. Nope. You know, later on, much later on, I, I became friendly with uh, an elder who was there who was more of a historian, and I've written about it over the last two decades. But at the time, it, I, what I realized is that it was the pottery and the family lineage that was keeping the culture alive, not the idea of history. And I wasn't going to get information on the deep history there. I was just going to understand that this little pottery community was keeping something alive that was there. So it took me. And, and still to this day, I, I, you know, write about it and get to know about it and use it as an example of Nicaragua's, you know, cultural patrimony that's not well documented. Now, um, it, it has, you know, Nicaragua's done a better job of um, expressing its cultural heritage, particularly in this village and also the island of Ometepe that I mentioned before, which is the... Um, you know, it's in the big lake, um, kind of just north of Costa Rica. There is a lot of tourism there, but it's got two volcanoes on it. It's the largest island inside the lake in the world. And from what is that, it's a, you know, it's probably a five, four to 5,000 year burial site where a lot of different communities, even as far as, um, maybe even in the like American Southwest Indian, certainly South America, because, uh, of the artifacts that are there have, you know, they have cultural um, 
relevance to those areas. And, and so there was a lot of trading there. There's, there's stories and different things. Uh, so I latched onto this village and, um, you know, I still, I, I, I've calculated now that I've been interacting and I've done, uh, about 60 different visits from artisans from the village to North Carolina, where I live now and doing events around the United States where, um, I've sponsored artists and we do art events and different, uh, you know, different retail interactions. Uh, you know, I've probably sold somewhere between 3.5 and $4 million worth of their cultural pottery over the last, uh, 20 some odd years. Uh, wow. When you put those, uh, kind of numbers behind it, uh, it is definitely impressive and, so if people want to find out more about the, this pottery, uh, where can they go? Uh, what is your website? Yeah. Uh, Nika, like Nicaragua, N-I-C-A, NikaCeramicArt.com uh, is a, I kind of, I incorporated it in 2010 and it really, really what it was is just solidifying what I did. I, I came back uh, from the Peace Corps in October of 1998. And my service had ended um, late in the year in 97, but I stayed in Nicaragua and I started a t-shirt company. So I was, I, I found an artist friend of mine that wasn't a, a pottery artist, but he was doing like, like caricatures and, and cartoon style art. And so we were putting them on t-shirts and, you know, we were selling them, um, you know, at different universities and different parties and events, I literally was like walking around with a backpack selling t-shirts and I, and, and the little bit of money I got from the Peace Corps and whatever I had, I put into that. And I, I got to the point where I was like, like trading t-shirt here and there for like a plate of food, because like I, I had made 3000 t-shirts and was, um, you know, putting it, you know, putting them out there. But, uh, I, it got to the, I, I had a girlfriend in Nicaragua who, um, became pregnant and I was telling, selling t-shirts out of my backpack and I stopped and I said, um, you know, it's time to go back home to the States and start to make a living because, you know, I, I, I love this woman and she's pregnant and I don't think I'm going to do a good job selling t-shirts in Nicaragua, taking care of this family. So I left in October of 98 and I brought a whole bunch of pottery back with me. And the reason that I, I knew that people liked the pottery is because a friend of mine from New Jersey college came down to visit and we could do a whole podcast on that visit. So I won't get into the actual visit right now, <laughs> but the essential about it is that he, he started a coffee shop out of his father had passed away and there was some family um, real estate, retail real estate. And his dad had a, a piano shop that had closed down and all the pian dusty pianos had been sitting there for years. He, he took everything out and he decked it out and he made it. He was built, he built a coffee shop there. And when he visited, we came up with the idea of let's deck the coffee shop out with all these cool crafts, including the pottery and other crafts that I had been, um, you know, learning about from other villages right around San Juan Duriente. 
And so I went around and I did, I was making custom pieces for his coffee shop. I was like telling people, let's do this, let's do this, let's, let's do this weaving, but we're going to weave in with the name of the coffee shop. So I got into that and uh, he gave me a budget of a thousand dollars. And I was just like willy nilly spending it all over these, um, these villages. And it was just, it was just so cool because I was interacting with people, people were excited that, you know, and it was like, we, we're not making tourist stuff. We're making like, you know, we're making, we're expressing the, the upper capacity of, of your artisan um, techniques. And that's what, I, that's what excited me. And that's what excited the artists that I was working with. And my job was to, you know, some people, you know, they, they made cool little touristy pr- um, artisan products, which is awesome. But there's, you know, finding the masters, finding the people that can do the next level thing was something I was really interested in. And when I did that with the pottery, it really opened up my eyes to, you know, my time there was kind of in this renaissance of the cultural pottery happening, but there was a movement of decorative pottery that was happening. And with this little project and then going back to the States, I latched on to that and really started to support it. And so when I got back to my mom had relocated to Raleigh, North Carolina, I had grown up in upstate New York and um, had left I was the Peace Corps. So North Carolina is where I decided to relocate because I knew, um, you know, my pregnant fiance was going to be coming back. I came, I went ahead of time and she was going to wait till after Christmas for about two months. And so I brought the pottery I showed my mom's neighbor and she said, you have to go to the flea market at the state fairgrounds and show people this. And I was like, flea market. She's like, well, it's like an antique market. It's a, it's a place where a lot of people go. So I went there with about 15 or 20 pieces and sold it out. The first, you know, it was like a $12 space. So that was my first, that was the beginning of um, bringing the pottery and I made trips down and brought it back. I ended up getting a real job where I was using my Spanish, but I was doing the pottery on the weekends and, and got to the point where I was, you know, could even sell a thousand dollars in a weekend, which back then, even now, sometimes you're like, Oh, I wish I could just deal with that. But it it just, I realized people loved it. And I realized I loved showing it to people and loved telling people the stories about how I ended up in the village where um, it's made and how these artisans make it. So that, that was, that was addictive. And that was something, um, to this day, that was 19, that was October, 1998 that I'm, I'm still doing, I'm doing in a different way. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I've sold a piece of pottery from that community for over $10,000. So it's a, not, not, you know, that's, that's a rarity, but it's over this 20 years, the artisans, their the notoriety the craftsmanship the respect in the market has just it, you know turned into something that's been you know it's a it's a battle to get there and get it here and get them here and to find the market but um you know from from little five ten dollar items to the most extravagant you know pieces that have ever come out of the village that's that's really what i've um been promoting and selling and and influencing over all these years 
Yeah, and I mean, the stuff I'm looking at, uh, nikoceramicart.com right now, and just some of the pieces that you have on there are absolutely beautiful because uh, my, my village in Burkina Faso made some pottery, but it was definitely uh, utility-driven pottery, uh, just yeah. plain plain earthenware. You might have some that have little etched-in designs, uh, but nothing yeah. that uh, had... Um, I guess the lacquer uh, applied to it, or and, and then sort of yeah, there's uh, a... firing it. But yeah, th- this work is gorgeous. Yeah, it it is. But you know, to to be honest, at the same time, like the pottery that you're describing, you know that it's so it's so freaking important that that person that, that that makes that pottery has an opportunity too mm-hmm. and it's it's been it's been a catch-22 for me over all these years because you know i've really had a lot to do with the design and the influence and the promotion of the museum quality pottery not just in contemporary also in replica work um you don't see a lot of that on the site there right now because it's Don Gregorio, who for, you know, two decades, I just interacted with whenever I was there. He's not really working anymore. I believe what he has is Alzheimer's, but I, I really latched on to the pre-Columbian pottery, but that, that like museum quality replica and it, and it became, there became a market for it, but that the movement is going towards the contemporary and we're doing some really contemporary, exciting things right now. But to to be honest, like in the back of my mind, it's always sitting there. Like, how do I, how do I still assist feature the families and the artisan that does that more simple craft? And, and it's hard because there's so much, there's so much cost associated with bringing pieces in and the, and mm-hmm. finding the market for it. And so the price of the, of the product is really, you know, there's just so much you can do with it on that. So when, when you know, when I go there, you know, those that making pots that they're going to sell in Nicaragua for, you know, $3, like that's who I'm hanging out with who I bring and what I'm developing as a designer and also relationships. I don't want to say, unfortunately, because it's just the way that it is um, the marketplace in order to like make a living out of it. Um, You know, so some of the artists that I've worked with have really, um, you know, had huge economic um, advances and the people associated with them, but I'm always trying to do small projects that, that keep, you know, keep the flow throughout the whole um, spectrum of the artists in, in the village. And, and, you know, I'm building a house there. It's about 80% done. And, and I feel like when it's done, I'm, I'm going back and I'm going to camp there and I'm going to make it happen for everybody. Well, that, that is uh, 
great to hear because uh, I, I I have one of those very simple uh, traditional dishes uh, that I brought back with me. It's just this small little shallow pot, uh, but I love it because it's something that I use almost every day. Uh, it holds my change, which may not be um, right. the, the you know it's not a museum piece, but it's something that I that I use every single day and get a lot of value out of, and just remember these women in my community who made these pots and you know, had a kiln that was a hole dug in the ground and they would bury it and cover it with embers. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're also trying to find ways to, to bring that pre-Columbian, uh, not so modern, uh, work, uh, to the surface as well. Yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's the way that you explained it, you know, that, that, value of that piece is the emotional connection that you have now if you took a picture of that and put it on a website it's 19 bucks yeah. you probably would find it very difficult for anybody to latch on to it the way that you have so what what the job is for someone like me or anybody uh whether they're a peace corps volunteer or someone that's gone to a village or has a connection to an indigenous craft is finding a way to tell the stories of the community, the culture and the people that make it and help the people that, that are interested in, in that sort of thing, you know, help them have that experience that maybe they can't travel to, you know, your village where you served or my village where I'm working and served or did a training program. You have to bring it to them. And I think that's the power of the technology that we have right now. And uh, it, it's, not a, it's not an easy thing to be able to harness it to tell stories, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly doable. And it's certainly something that is like a right now and a growth opportunity. And it's something I, I write about and talk about a little bit about, you know, how indigenous craft communities and people that enjoy them and sponsor and support them can use, you know, website, social email to be able to um, help broaden the, you know, the, 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 the prospects for them in terms of, it, you know, unfor unfortunately it's about selling, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. you can tell the stories, you can go there, you can write the book, you can fall in love, you can do the YouTube video, you can do, all of these different things, you can buy a piece or two or 10 to bring home and share, but it's really about creating a scenario that allows indigenous artists to maintain what they really want to do in a way that they can, you know, have dignity and take care of their families that way, because they will do it and they will teach their children and they will maintain it. But at, but, but a number one is, you know, putting food on the table and making sure that the kids, um, you know, have hopefully a better opportunity. It's not, it's not much different than it is here. It's just a different place. And maybe, you know, here you're talking about, you know, a subsistence $30,000 a year job um, when they're talking about $200 a month. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, how do you create that, that opportunity for, you know, 20, 30, 40 families in a village that has this special connection to their craft, you know, that, that, you know, every, every country you go to probably has 
a couple of those villages. You go to Mexico, they probably have dozens of villages. You know, you go to, um, you know, anywhere around the, anywhere in Africa, anywhere in Asia, anywhere in Europe, you know, that, that's the thing that's really got me kind of worked up is that when, when we go to museums and institutions and we celebrate these, these rare ancient cultural, um, artifacts, wood, pottery, stone paintings, um, or sites where we visit these places, and it's such, it's so popular and it's such a, it's like, it's weird, but there's a connect. We have a connection because these are all about ancient themes that humans have had and they shared it in artwork and they shared, they shared it and what they built and, and how they wrote about things and whatever language or hieroglyphics. And so we all have connections to that. And it's cool to see it in these, you know, museums around the world or when we're traveling but when you go to those communities, you're seeing the extension of that. You're seeing like uh, people that are still, even if they don't know it, because again, they're, like I said before, these pottery families are talking about like the, the couple generations of their family, my grandma and my mom or my dad and my uncle. And they're not looking at the age, but they're, but they're maintaining something that is ancient and connected to culture. So when we travel or when, you're really interested in those sort of things or you have that experience that's the way to keep it going is finding these artisans that are maintaining that tradition because they need they need a they need a marketplace they need a place they they need a reason to keep it going in order for it to be you know something that's sustainable for their families and um you know i over the last 20 something years, I haven't been able to do it well enough working in it full time in this one village for me to like talk about it on a big scale. So I'm just doing the local thing that I can in this one village. Uh, well, I think the work that you have done is absolutely amazing. And, and everything that you were talking about, just it, it resonates with me so much because I I loved in, in my village, I was very fortunate that I had several artisans or craftsmen that I got to spend time with, uh, the leather workers, uh, the forgers who made knives and traditional tools, which I have sitting actually right across the room for me that I'm, I'm staring at right now, uh, musicians who not only played their their uh, instruments, but made the instruments. Uh, so as as you were talking, I was just sort of like jumping up and down uh, in, in my seat, just thinking, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, 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 yes. I completely agree. Uh, so uh, the work that you were doing, even if you say you know it's only been you know one one village, one community, is absolutely amazing. So thank you for what you've continued to do uh, after your Peace Corps service. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it, obviously. And, um, and it's, it's a battle. I mean, we all, you know, that, that's why I'm excited for what you're doing, um, in terms of, you know, finding a way to keep stories alive and using, you know, the technology around the podcast to be able to tell these stories, because, um, I, I think, um, most volunteers that, that get through their, their complete, um, experience, or even if they leave early for whatever reason, it doesn't mean that it, they weren't impacted or whatever. Um, 
the the Peace Corps experience is is something that makes a big impact in people's lives. And, you know, you're there and you're having the experience and people are meeting you, but you're going back home and you're able to express things um, and people are interested about hearing the stories. And one of one of the things when I came out of the Peace Corps and I was doing my crazy T-shirt business and I, I was trying to I wanted to stay in the country. And there was a lot, you know, there's nonprofit organizations. And, you know, at, when we were in the beginning of our service and we would see like the USAID people and they had, you know, a couple of Land Rovers and they drove away. And it was just. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not looking down on that, but it was just it was just the difference between like being kind of in an ivory tower and then being like in the scrum, being in the village, talking with the people, having the experience. But when you were done with that Peace Corps experience in whatever country of your service, you are uniquely set up to provide services to organizations, businesses, uh, whether it's in your sector or not, because you're trained there. And I think there's a I think there's a new growth opportunity for the Peace Corps. And I think there was, you know, from the beginning, from when I was there and even now to be not that you have to go back to D.C. and be a part of the Peace Corps, um, you know, the, the bureaucratic part of it that does good work. But in country, like trying to uh, set up um, networking with businesses and others for volunteers that would stay that would like to, you know, stay a part of the community, but, you know, you've done your service, you've, you've volunteered. So now it's time to, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of people are young and it's time to be a, that the opportunities maybe could be in these countries where people want to stay and maybe networking with organizations, embassies, uh, private business is a way for the Peace Corps to kind of set up the next step for Peace Corps volunteers uh, after they're done rather than just, you know, I know they do have a lot of opportunities, whether it's for education or, you know, in DC in their offices, but I'm talking about like within the, however many countries they're operating in right now. I think that's a real need for the Peace Corps as, as a line, you know, you have alliances. I had alliances with the organization where I, where I worked for the two years as a Peace Corps volunteer, that same idea but as on a professional level, after you're done, I think is a, is a real interesting um, opportunity for volunteers and the Peace Corps to kind of come together. And, you know, all these countries, I mean, you know, it's it's an international world. There's a lot of there is cultural or language or, or just having been in the country for a while and knowing, you know, the the how to get around whatever it is where, where there's, there's, there's a professional opportunity for Peace Corps volunteers when they're finished in country. Mm -hmm. I I definitely think that that would be an an amazing thing for them to, to create or even volunteers to, to think about as they're, they're going in. I know there, I have talked to volunteers who have created projects and have stayed connected with their communities. uh, But if there was just maybe, Maybe like a little bit more education or guidance on on how to to best do that for those who are interested in it. Uh, it that would be a, a step in the right direction. 
yeah, internships or something, um, you know, it, it would definitely most likely be something a little different. Probably. Yeah. You had your experience out there in the rural areas. Now, you know, there's this company that is in Managua or the capital city of wherever else that, you know, you do have to go to the office. You do have to do, um, more of the structured business, but it's probably, you know, a different type of salary, but you're able to go in there and have the language and cultural training. And, you know, maybe, you know, they are doing, you know, international business, or they are working if you're in the health sector with, you know, looking for, uh, you know, hospitals or other places that are, they're trying to connect with and they need the, you know, the English language skills or whatever, you know, whatever type of skills individuals come with, with their, you know, college or whatever else. So, it's, it would be like a professional networking that the Peace Corps could do in country, reaching out to local businesses and organizations. Uh, at least that's the way that I would potentially see it that I think could be, you know, interesting, maybe do like a, a pilot program in a country or two. And then if it worked out, you could, you know, ex- expand it. Very, very interesting idea indeed. And I, I do know that there are some people who listen to those podcasts who do work at Peace Corps headquarters. So uh, maybe maybe they will take it up and explore it. Yeah, you know, this, this is what you've created here is just a, a really cool place to, you know, explore and talk. And so, you know, put it out there and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Well, Paul, I have had a great time talking with you, learning about your Peace Corps experience. Uh, Before we leave, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast? First of all, I'd like to thank you for having me and putting uh, this, this podcast together. And I think what I'd like to say to whoever listens to this and gets through this whole episode at this point would be that the Peace Corps is a unique opportunity uh, for anybody that's ready to get to know the world and also get to know themselves. And I think what worked for me was that I went there totally open for an experience and not thinking particularly of, of something very specific. I know that people that had a specific idea of what they wanted to accomplish maybe had a harder time getting through it or didn't get through it, um, being completely open. And then when, when you go through and you have that experience and you finished, you don't have to work with a, a community for 20 years, but finding a way to stay engaged and, uh, you know, broadcasting your experience, you know, do the writing, do the little, you know, videos and, you know, being that um, kind of documentarian of the experience, um, you get to do it now so easily with smartphones and little videos. There are things that can, you know, last for a lifetime and other people can find them and get inspired by them and, and hopefully have, you know, a similar experience. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast for sharing not only your service, but the work that you have continued to do. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Tyler, thank you so much. Again, uh, keep up the good work, and and I really, uh, really enjoyed it. 
And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Core Story podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you get a new episode delivered to you every single Tuesday when I release them. Also, if you listen to podcasts on Spotify, well, guess what? This podcast is now on Spotify, so you can head over there, subscribe to the show, and after you're done listening to your favorite tunes, you can listen to your favorite Peace Corps Story podcast. As always, I've enjoyed spending this time with you, talking about Peace Corps, sharing Peace Corps stories. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?